the music industry was super corrupt and and, may, and probably still is, but they they were doing all sorts of trickery on their numbers, and we couldn't do that because everything we did was transparent and just in time. <laughs> so we couldn't play the game the same way the traditional music commerce companies could, meaning we had to make money on every transaction and margins in music was super slim. All right, Mike, thanks for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to dive into, uh, you know, all the stuff you have to share. I know we've been working together for quite a while. And uh, every time I talk with you, I get some sort of uh, insight, whether it's, uh, you know, something obvious that I just didn't see, or if it's just something ridiculous outside of the box. Uh, really excited to hear uh, your uh, eight lessons from eight startup story. You've been CTO at a number of uh, companies, COO, CEO at companies that were publicly traded, acquired by you know large acquirers. And uh, I'd love to kind of dive in and hear more about your stories. Thanks for having me, Brian. And I'm I'm really excited. I love storytelling, so I'm excited to to share some insights t- today. Cool. Yeah. So uh, where do you typically uh, kind of start your story? Uh, you know, what was sort of like the beginning of your career like and how did you end up in all these C roles at tech companies? Yeah. So um, that that was the interesting um, lesson I got about my own self and my own career. When I look back on these eight stories, when I started to tell them, um, I, I, I started as an engineer. And, you know, as an engineer, you're really good with computers and not as good as people, not as good with people. And what happened, though, you know, when I went from engineer to engineering manager to CTO to CEO to CEO, and then I look back on the lessons I learned at each of these organizations, um, they were all about people. I learned a lot about people. And... And so for me, you know, like business is business and and while business evolves over the decades, you know, still the stuff that we practiced in the 1920s is still what's what's successful today often. Um, and and technology evolves all the time. But, you know, it's, you know, one 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 programming language is like another programming language. It's just the next the next the next one. People, though, are, are really the hard part because people are less predictable and they're evolving all the time. And so for me, it was a it was a real revelation to see that everything I learned in my career, I learned about people. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I do think there's uh, lessons that carry through, especially the people lessons. Uh, but like one of the things, uh, probably jumping ahead in your story, but you were uh, CEO, I think you started as COO at CD Now, uh, which was a huge uh, dot com of its time, and I remember you telling me the story of how much money and manpower, you know, people power was invested in building the website. Which nowadays, like you'd do that on like a Shopify or a Magento or something, and it would cost like low six figures, probably maybe maybe at most high six figures to build it. And uh, it's interesting how like technology does evolve and opens up new opportunities. You know, opens up like new ceilings to expand into. Yeah. But uh, at the core of it, it's always people and the same kind of like lessons from people. And and so so CD Now is a great example because so much was changing. CD Now changed a lot. uh, And and I'll share some of that story. But 
but the world was changing around CD Now, which was the catalyst for a lot of these changes we had to undergo. But I started out as CTO, not a COO. I evolved to COO after I mastered the technology of e-commerce, right? And this was the early days of e-commerce. So CD Now started out as a Telnet store, right? Before the commercialization of the World Wide Web and the websites as we know them today and as e-commerce as we know them today, People were interacting with text interfaces, and, and so we had a we had an online music store that was available by Telnet, and you'd log in and you'd you'd search the catalog all by text, and there was no pointing and clicking going on. We had a Telnet store, which eventually evolved to a rudimentary website. There were no frameworks you could buy, so we built all of our own. Um, we. We, um, we actually used the Apache web server because it was open source, so we could put our code right into the web server code. Um, right. So that's the, those are the challenges that we were that we were tackling. Um, we still took orders by fax, so you could still fax in your order to customer service who would go to the who would go to the Telnet site and, and put it into the site. Um, and so when I joined, I, I joined the company, it was a couple of years old. And there were six developers who were all just doing very basic stuff and um, all of it proprietary. And I asked the CEO, um, you know, what's one thing I can do that will um, Im- have the greatest impact on this company by the end of the year? So it was my first six months, basically. And he said, I want to have a holiday shopping season with zero downtime. Uh-huh. And and, and technology was very fragile at the time. Like everybody had downtime, even just to back up your database, you had to have downtime. So I said, I said, you got it. That's what I'm going to focus on. And then he proceeded to give me a list of 10 other things he wanted. And I said, All right, well, we're going to start with number one and we'll work our way down. Were you guys like self-hosting and racking servers in your office or where were you putting it? Uh, yes, <laughs> it was. So we had a building in Ambler in Penland, actually. It was at a an old post office at a septa station and these servers were stored in a closet under the stairs <laughs> everything was self hosted there was no cloud back then we were, were talking about the um the uh the mid 90s um was there colo or any of that stuff or not really there was colo but but we were just too small to do colo and colo really didn't support the kind of tools that that we needed um, so we had our servers. We couldn't turn on the air conditioner. The developers were all in one room, which had window unit air conditions, and we couldn't turn on the air conditioner because it brought the servers down. <laughs> um, I took us to our first, we, we moved to a slightly more professional environment afterwards, and I built a tiny data center in a closet. But then when we moved to Fort Washington, as we were growing, we got our own 90,000 square foot building and I built out a class A data center. Um, so we had a we had a data center. By that time, we were using EMC equipment for for all of our Oracle databases. And we had a lot of redundancy involved and three ca- we picked the building that we picked because three carriers came into it. But yeah, none of it was in the cloud. We had to build our own data center and have our own technical operations team. Um, what year was that that you were doing that? Uh, that would be probably 98, 99. Okay. Um, you know, today we would do it completely differently, obviously, but, um, but yeah, that was part of the CTO's job was, was building the team, which eventually I got to the point where we had 120 people in the technology organization. Um, so, so, you know, just 
do the math, add up how much we're spending. <laughs> we're buying Oracle license, uh, 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 EMC, uh, EMC data storage, Sun Microsystems servers, redundancy, our own data center. Um, we're spending, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Um, and, um, you know, when I joined, we were about 300,000 in revenue. Within a few years, we were at 150 million in revenue. Um, and the company was doubling every six months, uh, right after we went pop, we did a mezzanine round right before going public. Right after we went public, we acquired our closest competitor. So it was my first experience in integrating two different departments. Um, and, and after I had accomplished that, the CEO said, Mike, I love what you do with technology. I need help in customer service. So I went in and helped customer service. And then it's like, you know what? I need help in creative services and I need help in fulfillment. Before you know it, I had become COO, displacing, replacing a lot of leaders who couldn't grow with the company as quickly as I was growing, in part because I wasn't only focused on the business challenge at hand or the technical challenge at hand. I was also bu building out the organization in a way that made me um made me um dispensable where i was i i i mastered the art of delegation and i had amazing people who could step into my shoes as i stepped into into new new accountabilities yeah that's awesome how much did you guys raise to get to that point before you went public not a ton um i i, I don't know how much I can't recall how much angel money was raised prior to my joining. I believe the mezzanine round was only 10 million. Wow. Um so you guys uh, are growing on just profitability then? Um revenues. It was it was <laughs> it was precarious. Once we went public, we spent a lot of that money. Um we started to take on debt. Um you know, the the financial side of the business was not a great story because when I ultimately I don't recall. I'd have to look at the prospectus to remember where we were in terms of profits. Um, we, we were profitable until I took over as CEO. And even then, um, I, I did a turnaround, but we didn't get to profitability yet. Um, it's so just it's funny, though, like back then, uh, you know, pre.com bubble, it was like e-commerce businesses were the darlings and, you know, these like high growth, you know, what, what today would be like a SaaS business. And yeah. uh E-commerce has proven like over the last two decades to not be a super profitable. No. Well, especially music, right? Music. Look, we were competing with Targets and Best Buy who used music as a loss leader, right? They just did that to get you into the door. The record labels would love doing business with Best Buy, for example, who could buy a million dollars worth of the new Mariah Carey album at the end of the year. And then return them all after the you know in February when when the um when the annual when the year end reports were when everyone closed their financials, so they they were doing a lot. The music industry was super corrupt and and, may, and probably still is, but they they were doing all sorts of trickery on their numbers, and we couldn't do that because everything we did was transparent and just in time. <laughs> so we couldn't play the game the same way the traditional music commerce companies could, meaning we had to make money on every transaction and margins and music was super slim. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, and what it costs to operate this business, the, the people, the hardware, the software, 
Um, the the upkeep of all of that was, um, you know, it was very difficult to make the company profitable. So when I took over as CEO was when we decided to sell the company off and take it from public to private um, after the dot-com bubble had burst. And, and they named me CEO. And at that point, we were losing $65 million a year. And within a year, I turned us around a $40 million improvement. We were still losing... Twenty-five million dollars a year, but we um, we were we were much better. We were losing a lot less, I guess. So, what was uh, what was your core lesson from CD Now? So the core the core lesson from CD Now was, and, and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna pull up a note because I I um, there's so many. I, I mean, CD Now. I describe CD Now as a um, uh, um, an MBA, right? The my five years there, I got to grow the company, be part of raising money, taking it public, nearly going bankrupt, selling it to a big corporation, becoming a wholly owned subsidiary. Um, there wasn't there wasn't a single thing that I had done there that I could have learned in in um in grad school. Well, that's better um, than an MBA for sure. Yeah. So, so I've kind of alluded the lesson for CD now, the biggest lesson I had um was was something I've already mentioned, is the fact that I made myself dispensable. So that trajectory of me going from CTO to COO to CEO would have never happened if I didn't have really good people in my organization who could do what I did, or in fact, do it better. And that's something that I've I've really um put into my coaching, um, especially as I work with CEOs of organizations that are growing and CEOs, especially founders of companies, um, uh, you know, struggle with delegation. You know, I, I had one CEO tell me, um, Mike, you don't, you don't get to found a business and get this far in your career without knowing more than everyone else. So nobody can do your job better than you. And I had the complete opposite approach that says, you know what, someone who's maybe has more experience in this or has more focus in this, um, you know, like sales or or even technology today, right? There are almost any CTO will do a better job than I could do as a CTO today, even though I may start a company and be the informally the CTO. Um, there, are, there are tens of thousands of CTOs who will do a far better job than me. And one day, I should not be the I should not be the guy who makes all the tech decisions. I should be the guy who finds the guy who goes and makes those tech decisions. Yeah, and I mean, so I, I totally agree. I've seen so many uh, founders and entrepreneurs like really get stuck on their thing, yeah. and uh, and I did for a while too. I, maybe I, I don't. I like to think I'm good at delegating. Maybe you would agree or disagree since uh, you've coached me. But <laughs> um, you know, for me, uh, it's like you know the. The, I think the thing that I bring to the table for my team is that I think strategically and I know a little bit about everything in the company, but each individual thing, there's somebody that, in my opinion, there's somebody else that should be better at it than me. Otherwise, I'm failing if I'm the best person at each individual tactical thing. Yeah. And and that's, you know, so at CD Now, it was, you know, my peers who did not grow with the organization were completely entrenched in their departments. Which is why when, you know, Jason, who was the CEO when I joined, when Jason said, I'm having problems with customer service, and in all honesty, I had never run a customer service department, right? What did I know? But he saw me build the tech team and he saw me build the processes and the people and um, how to make it um, 
meet all of its goals without my being in the trenches. You know, he's like, I kind of want that for the customer service team. And, and, um, and so I would not have grown the way I did at CD now or in my career without having, you know, mastered the ability to make myself dispensable. Yeah, cool. All right. What's another lesson uh, on your list of lessons? I don't know if we'll get to all eight, but let's, <laughs> no, no, let's keep going. <laughs> you, got, um, you got a book coming out on this though. So you can tease the book at the end if we don't get to all eight. I, I can, although uh, I don't know, that's a lot of pressure because I, I haven't finished writing it yet. Um, but well, the, when you um, say it in public, you know, now you have to make it happen. <laughs> the, Productivity um, hack. The, the company I was at, I, I was sharing this story with someone the other day. Um, the company I was at prior to CD Now was a company that called Infonautics. And Infonautics was, again, the very early days of the of, of the internet, of the commercialization of the internet, where it was a, um, uh, my background was in search and search technologies, which is what I did in, in Silicon Valley prior to coming to Philly. And, and Infonautics was building a search system for um, online online content accessible to students, right? The students, you know, this was the days where at Sunday night, you know, someone's child would tell the parent that um, I have a report due tomorrow, the library's closed, what do I do? <laughs> and, and so we thought to say, all right, we're gonna put that online and that's what the company did. The challenge was back then, no different than it is today, was to get people to pay for content. Over <laughs> the, the years, uh, the Infonata, is Infonautica, right? Uh, Infonautics, yeah. So that was like Infonautics, 94, okay. Infonautics, 94. Um, I was there through about 97 until I went to CD yeah. Now. Um, and the company lasted a few years longer. But with Infonautics, we we never figured out the 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 um we never figured out the uh business model. And that wasn't my job. I was there as as you know, head of engineering. So and I was a second employee. They hired the CFO and then they hired me to build the engineering team. So, so I got to master some really interesting technical challenges, especially as we went from, you know, what what engineers would call a stateful system, like a closed proprietary system like CompuServe or Prodigy or AOL, into an open system, a stateless system like the World Wide Web, like web browsers, and and, and we had to master that because there were, again there was no platform for it. So we invented things like how to put session IDs in URL, and we own the patent for that. Not, not that that helped us be a successful business. It it helped a few patent trolls who acquired the assets after we closed up. But um, you guys actually so just like uh, using what like URL queries like question mark you, you know variable equals and then like a session ID and that's like you guys literally pat patented that. We patented that. We patented the idea of having doing searches over multiple media content. We own the patent for the ability to search <laughs> images and text and other other media at the same time. That's like uh, patenting like, oh yeah, I'm going to own the patent to you know install software on mobile devices. But, <laughs> but then nobody else was doing it, right? We were the first to think about it. Um, <laughs> And and so it was a very interesting from from a technology perspective. I can tell tons of stories from Infinox because it's super interesting. But again, my lesson was really about people and the thing that so Infinotics, you know, for you know, was modestly successful, but generally not. It was one of those pioneers that took the arrows in the back, not unlike CD now. And and the thing though about Infinotics was the people who worked there probably nearly 30 years later 
are still really well connected and still work together. We, and, and, and the reason is it was the first company I worked for that had identified its value system, its core values, and hired, strictly hired in a, people in alignment with those core values. And we ended up working, ultimately the company I think grew to close to 200 people. But some of the most important people to me in my career and ultimately in my life, I worked with it in phonautics. And so it's the, the one of the things that you need to get right other than your business model is the people and the team, how they work together. And it's all anchored with with core values. And that was the big lesson for me in phonautics was the the importance of core values. And in phonautics, we called it the the, the good business pledge, I believe. And um, what was really good about it too was it just wasn't some, you know, contrite statement of, you know, we have integrity, we place customers first, but it was thoughtful to the point where each of the values were broken down into behaviors that we wanted to see. So rather than just tell you that we hire people with integrity, there was a one of the examples I use in our value system was there was a behavior under that that said, we will offer no deal that we wouldn't otherwise accept ourselves. Mm. Right? Really? Now that's very clear. So integrity means different things to different people, but that one behavior about the kind of deals we we offer was was very, you know, um, was understandable by anyone who was considering joining the company or who was part of the company. Yeah, you got me thinking about a lot there. Uh, but quick side tangent, it's really funny. Uh, do you know Stan Pittman by chance? Not personally. No, I know of Stan. Yeah. He's a friend of mine. He just he just did uh, the last episode. It went live yesterday. And uh, he uh, started his career. He was somewhere else, I think at GE or somewhere first, but then ended up after that at Arthur Anderson pre, pre-collapse and uh, wasn't involved in the Enron stuff. But, you know, he built this like core team at Arthur Anderson Consulting, who after the collapse went on to do uh, a lot of a move to Smart, which was a big firm in Philly at the time. And then Smart got acquired by LECG and then LECG collapsed. And then I think Grant Thornton acquired those assets and like brought the team. And then the team went to Grant Thornton and then something happened there. I forget what. And then uh, Stan started EigenX. And uh, a lot of the people that uh, were his co-workers and you know teammates at Arthur Anderson like through all of that like the, this like core team kind of went through all of those collapses and acquisitions and new firms being started and then ended up at EigenX all these years later uh, and it was a really interesting story and it was like exactly what you're talking about there with yeah. uh, Infonautics. Yeah and it's it's you know you think about alumni with with our schools or um, but it, it was this was the early and Silicon Valley does this a lot now, but um, or, or or you know really pioneered the concept of alumni. But um, hey, you know what? I shouldn't even say pioneered because it's always been around. But the concept of work alumni um, is very meaningful, right? I know that you know, for example, Coke and Pepsi, right on the East Coast here, right? The um, the people in in consumer packaged goods, you know, start their careers often at either Coke or Pepsi, or at least historically had done that, and they would talk about their alumni network of Pepsi people or Coke people. Yeah, that's cool. I love that. Uh, so. Um... So the lesson from Infonautics, if I heard it, was the uh, 
it, it, it's the the values, right? The importance of values and the the team that that is a sort of a necessary factor in in building a successful company. Yeah, cool. And the behaviors behind the values that that was my key takeaway was the yes. the kind yeah. of the behavioral element of not just stating a value, but stating what the behavior is around that that value. Yeah, and and I've worked, you know, I, I work with dozens of of leaders and organizations today, and 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 hundreds perhaps over the course of of trajectifying my my coaching practice, and and I I often inquire about values, and a lot of the CEOs have done it superficially or haven't even thought about it because they didn't see the importance of it, and so sometimes my coaching might lead them to the point where they're working on it more seriously, on the values more seriously. And and almost every time there's an aha moment with them that says, I get it now. And I, I remember one CEO who resisted it for probably a year of our working together is like, it's not important. I it's I got more important things to do. And then he was at a, a he he served enterprise clients. He was at one of their big annual events and they started celebrating their lessons and rewarding people for that, recognizing people for for living the, the values. And he kind of texted me from that event and says, I got it. I understand it now. And he came back and he did his own values. And then um, and then he, he rolled them out in the organization. He did it very well. And then three weeks later, he tells me, I just fired my first person for not a, for lack of alignment to our values. And he said, you know what? For for the three years this person was working for me, um, I, I kind of didn't enjoy working with them and I didn't really think they were good at their job, but I couldn't really put a finger on what was wrong and I couldn't find a reason to fire them. And he says, the minute I, I created my values, the, the core values and rolled them out as a company, he says, I knew exactly why they didn't fit. And I let him go. Yeah, that's, that's uh, really uh, great insight there. I love that. Uh, all right, what do you got? Number three. These are- uh, Oh, you want another uh, one? Okay. Um so uh, uh let's let's do something a little bit more contemporary um the i'm not going to let's see um i'm going to go with the the um sorry for that um Go with the uh, tech I have one. I have one. So there's <laughs> this. This is specifically for tech entrepreneurs, but there's there's this feeling. There's this feeling that once we have a success, we can do anything. And one of my lessons at 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 Real Food Works, which was a, a food delivery company, a food, a, a, yeah, a food, a subscription service. Um, that I, I I worked on for a couple of years with a with a great team, people who I met at Infonautics, by the way. Um, we we weren't successful, and and we we went into it thinking that well, we know about technologies, and we know about people, and we know about systems, and we know about marketing, so we can pretty much do anything. In fact, we can do food better than we can do a food business better than food people can because they don't know it. They know about food, but they don't know anything about building a business, and and. We we really thought we could, you know, we had the knowledge to do it all. And we we went into the business with a very agile approach. You know, we liked we liked lean startup philosophy. And so we said, well, what are the risks? What are the risks in getting started? And let's prioritize them. And 
Um, you know, we had, what kind of risks did we have? Well, could chefs make the food that we wanted? Could could we um, package the food and deliver it to customers? Could we find the customers? Um, could we retain the customers once they subscribed? Right, those were kinds of things that were risks, and we 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 sort of prioritized them in a way that let's focus on the biggest risk first. Let's 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 validate those assumptions before we work on the the stuff that we're pretty sure we can do. And of course, we were sure that we could do all the marketing and customer engagement and customer acquisition and, and customer engagement. We were sure that we could do that because we had mastered that in tech companies our entire careers. Um, so we started de-risking the business from a food prop, uh, from the, the perspective of the food. And um, and we did that. We spent the first year, year and a half getting good at having the food made, getting good at having the food collected, getting good at food having packaged, right? We spent a lot of time on packaging, getting getting good at, at having the food delivered, Um and then we went to, you know, we had a, uh, we we had about a hundred customers at the time, a hundred subscribers. Of course, a lot of those were were Did either you say it friends. was pre-packaged food or what, like pre-cooked, or was it? We uh... had the the concept was it was a plant-based company um, before plant-based was all a rage, and the and the concept was that we would work with local restaurants to teach their chefs how to prepare plant-based meals, and the local restaurants and restaurateurs would prepare the food and we would then offer our subscribers selections of different cuisines from different restaurants with different notable chefs. Because there was a presumption that food that comes out of a commissary is kind of boring and, 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 you know, uninteresting food that comes out of our house is often boring and uninteresting. It's the restaurant food that has that, that special um, value that, you know, makes us love restaurant food better than any other meal. And so, um, in fact, most people, if you ask them what meal do they remember the most, it's probably a meal they ate out, not a meal that they cooked themselves or, or a meal that they had at a cafeteria. So our idea was, our concept was, we'll get restaurants to prepare the food. And um, it took training and, and it you know, took us a few iterations to get that because, you know, what, what do they use in food? In restaurants that makes the food amazing, you know, it's salt, sugar, and fat. And we were trying to offer healthy versions of that. So um, there's a little bit of challenges there, but we overcame them pretty easily. We And we overcame, you know, we, we figured out how to package it and distribute it. And we had, like I said, we had 100 subscribers. A lot of them are friends and families or, you know, zealous early adopters. Um, and so we said, all right, well, now we just have to turn on the marketing engine. And that's where we got stuck. Because we thought, because we could sell technology all throughout our careers, that we could sell food the same way. And ultimately, the company failed because we couldn't figure out how to acquire customers or how to retain customers. Um, and we tried various messaging and we tried various technologies and, and systems. Um, and I mean, even to the point where we, we tried grassroots stuff, like we went to some of the wealthiest zip codes um, in the region and um, handed out flyers at the train station, knowing that people who were probably in wealthy areas taking the train into work were super busy and um, and highly effective people. And because they lived in a, in a, high, in a, in a nice area code, that they would potentially um, be more interested in healthy food. So we, we, we tried everything. And for the life of us, we, we couldn't market it. Um, we even started out saying we're going to focus on health and not weight loss or diet. 
and even even ultimately had to succumb to selling based upon weight loss. But none of that worked for us. And and so my lesson there was was you know it was was almost stick to what it is that you're good at, right? And and just because you have a bunch of successes doesn't mean you can do anything or everything. Certainly not. Um, well, let's back up there for a second. Yeah. Uh, what do you think you guys missed? Like, what was the, what what was the piece that like why why didn't was it like the wrong products? Was it you didn't reach people properly? Wrong messaging? You know what? I, I we we all st- <laughs> we all still disagree about that. Um, but the um, I, and we know we don't know right. We don't know because we never solved it right. But but here's a few guesses right. First. Um, because we were located in Philadelphia, we use Philadelphia as our test market. Philadelphia is not a city known for its healthy food. Um, Lucinda was your partner in this, right? From Monetate? Yes, Lucinda was the founder, and I joined her shortly afterwards as co-founder. So Philly, not a healthy uh, city. Philly's not a healthy city. Um, That food is very, um, food is very emotional. Um, how you sell food needs to account for those emotions. Um, the fact that a lot of the people who were our target market were also feeding a whole family and not everybody wanted to eat, you know, healthy plant-based meals. Um, they're, they're, so from a product perspective, a message perspective and a, and, a, and a target market perspective, they never got an alignment. We never were able to sort of match that. Um, I had I, I said, you know, look, maybe we can take this to Washington D.C. or Boston, places where um, that where the towns are a bit more foodie and there's more health consciousness, um, where they're willing to pay for the convenience of healthy food. Um, but we we hadn't raised enough money and didn't have enough momentum to to have the burden of you know the the cost burden of 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 relocating basically trying a new market there's other companies doing this now though there's uh yeah. like blue apron i think they they had a, a reckoning but uh what's the one out of austin texas uh they used to have the the location on uh chestnut and 18th or something i don't recall because there are so many players in the space now there are so many and, and the and space it, exists like it's a thing now so the thing we struggled with delivery but that was before the gig economy, right? Now there's a gig economy where delivery is, mm. you know, you can turn up a delivery network like that. Um, so delivery was a challenge for us. Food How pack. did you try to deliver it back then? Well, man. Hired uh, drivers? So we started with local delivery. No, we, we did not start with drivers because that was just something we didn't want to build out. So we started with local um, last mile delivery services. The problem was the cost. Um, we eventually tried some of the big common carriers fedex wow interesting we're getting good at delivering food um who were getting better because they were doing it for a lot of a a lot of people at the time so they they were it was a business they were starting um so yeah we we had tried a number of of delivery local delivery options last mile delivery options but none of them were either rely they weren't sufficiently reliable um because this was all fresh food so there was a timeliness to it um, or they were too expensive. Um, do, you, do you know Philly Food Works by chance? I do. Yeah. You, you said you do know them. I I I I met them subsequent to Real Food Works. Um, they and I spoke. I haven't been in touch with them recently, but they and I spoke at 
an event together, um, I believe, at the time. Yeah, so my my wife and I buy uh, groceries from Philly Foodworks, mm-hmm. and it's like slightly more expensive than Whole Foods, but it's all locally sourced for the most part, yeah. and uh, they like deliver it right to your house or right to mm-hmm. you know right to in our case apartment yeah. uh, right to the concierge. And there's uh, you know, it's it's pretty good, uh, really great quality foods, and yeah. it's not prepared; it's just groceries. But uh, yeah. they built out their own driver network surprisingly i mean they're super regional like they're super metro philly area they go out to the like as far as westchester but they literally built their own driver network but you know today today it's so much easier right you know again maybe real food works was a pioneer who took the arrow in the back because we were at the very early stages of the plant-based revolution prior to everyone doing takeout and everyone having driver networks right we Mm. we, it, it didn't exist when we were when we were trying this so um, what's uh, I cut you off on the lesson? What's the the closeout on the lesson there? Well, the closeout of lesson is that is that you can't do everything. Um, that that stick with stick with what you're good at. Um, I, I the um there was a talk at one of the events I hosted a couple of years ago given by Rob Fitzpatrick. Rob, people may know he wrote the Mom Test book, mm. but he was studying entrepreneurship, and 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 Rob emphasized this this lesson that i'm sharing by talking about how entrepreneurs can get millions of dollars collect millions of dollars of assets worth of assets as they move from company to company or or, or you know startup to startup and and one of the biggest points that he made was stick with what you know right if you stay in the same if you stay in the same industry, you retain knowledge, you retain connections, you retain partnerships, right? You're not building them from scratch every time. One of the things I did in my career was every startup was something different. And so, you know, when I look back on it, it's like, oh, damn, I just should have stuck with something because then I would have kept bringing, I would have kept accumulating valuable assets as I brought from one to the other. Instead, I brought experience, but I didn't necessarily bring those assets. And so I, a lot of times, especially when I'm career coaching, it's like, do what you know, right? Yeah. Do what you know, and and you have a much better chance of succeeding than by trying to something completely different. Yeah, I've seen that with a few um, few Philly area entrepreneurs that just like find their lane. Uh, like Bob Mole comes to mind. Uh, you know, every one of his companies he's gone to is... Uh, like DevOps, it's like yeah. cloud, you know, cloud automation, you know, SaaS company or something. Yeah, and and you know, so I'm selling SaaS to enterprises in a particular area, and I've now built a network and a reputation, and I know how to sell to enterprise. Right, I don't have to figure out how to sell healthy food. I just, I, I already know how to sell to, you know, Fortune 1000, you know, uh, CIOs, right, and and I have a network of them, right. Think about that value. Um, you know, because if, if Bob in your case did go to do a healthy food business, he probably would struggle to succeed. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. All right. What's number four? Uh, Let's do another one. So, um, the last one was, um, this one will be a little bit more controversial. Um, not controversial, but, but sounds contradictory to some of what I've taught in the past. Um, so this one was Infonautics. I, I'm, I'm sorry, Infonautics. Intranet, which is the last startup I did. Um, did it with an amazing partner, um, Martin Babinick, who was the founder of Trinet. And he had this idea for how to um, 
how to facilitate introductions and create a very smart and warm um, network, as opposed to LinkedIn, which is kind of dumb and cold, right? Um, not, not that we won't be sharing this podcast on LinkedIn, but but there's not a lot of smarts in LinkedIn um, because it, it doesn't work to their benefit, right? Um, they're trying to connect recruiters and and salespeople to 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 markets. That's how they make money. So, um, but Martin and I had a better idea, right? And and so Martin hired me at this point. I'm, you know, 25 years into my career and and have a lot, you know, a lot of successes and lessons learned behind my belt and uh, under my belt. And so he's like, I'll put some money behind it. You know, you put together a team, you build it. He was working on other things at the time. So he's just kind of like, you know, let me be the visionary and 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 kind of fund it, but but I, I want you to sort of you know own it here. And I put together a team of nine people. Um, we started a very agile process of 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 getting software out there and and testing different um, hypotheses, different um, validating assumptions. You know all the all the lean startup stuff you want to do. We 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 sort of followed it to a T. Um, I I came in though. Like my first hire was a CTO, um, Nick Hylum, great, great guy. Now he's he was a Philly guy. Now he's in San Francisco. What years so was this, by the way, just for context? This was um, 2013. Okay, all right, so more recent. Yeah, right, right, right. As I was deciding to start Trajectify as well, so it's kind of started them both in parallel. But but um, in fact, I started Intranet in my spare time, and then eventually focused on it full time while I had my coaches run Trajectify, and then and then and then a year later swapped back to Trajectify. But um, I had a product manager, Tyler, um, who was also a community manager. Um, Nick and Tyler are amazing people, and then over time. As we learned more, we grew the team out, had a small team in the Czech Republic and a designer and a, a UX person and a front-end developer here in Philly. Um, and anyhow, so we built a team of nine, um, awesome team. Um, I deleg- I was you know, the master of delegation. I delegated stuff to them. And um, ultimately, you know, we, we didn't succeed. We never found that product market fit, right? Um, you know, we I learned that lesson a lot in my career, right? But um, in fact, nobody has, right? I, I still use LinkedIn. I'm still a very um, active user of LinkedIn, right? I haven't found anything better yet. Nobody's put out anything different. So, um, but what the lesson learned there was when I when I did a retrospective as to why didn't it succeed, I realized that I had come in wearing the CEO hat, and it was a startup. Um, I was very, you know, thoughtful about the people I hired and how I led them. And um, yet most, many startup founders are wild-eyed visionaries who are control freaks. And when I look back, it's like, you know what? The business was missing that irrationally passionate person who obsessed over every detail. Um. And I try to be the CEO long before the company needed a CEO. They needed a founder. Um, so, you know, that, and I've worked for those, those visionaries a lot in my career, um, where they make you, you, you get afraid every time they call you on the phone or, or pop into your, your office because they're going to 
disrupt your day with some new idea. <laughs> and yet those are the founders who create successful companies. There's a passion there that must exist to keep an early team together long enough to sort of build the traction you need to know that you're on a path to success. So I had mastered the art of delegation. I knew how to build a team and I went right into CEO mode and I didn't make anyone nuts and I probably should have. I think there's a gene uh, that's like maybe some kind of, uh, you know, a couple screws loose in the head of people who start companies where you just get this like obsessed, irrational, like uh, drive that's... Uh, it's like yeah. it's impossible not to do the thing. Like no matter what, you're gonna go do the thing because you can't not do it. It's like every case study in and we'll take Silicon Valley billionaires, which which are outliers anyhow. But but look at the you know Stephen Jobs was so um, passionate, irrationally passionate that you know the company fired him right, <laughs> and he had to go back and rescue it years later. You know Zuckerberg in the metaverse and Elon Musk and you know all that's going on right now. Right, these people are irrationally passionate. Um, Bill Gates, right? He, not only Bill Gates in building Microsoft, but Bill Gates and what he's doing now with all of his wealth and in, in in genetic modification of food and you know buying up you know farms all over the world, um, you know noble causes. But he's operating in a very what I perceive to be irrational, you know, irrationally passionate way. Um, but but these guys all have successes unparalleled with the rest of us. And I'm not saying that every irrationally passionate person will be successful. Many, many aren't. But um, well, I think a lot of these founders, like there's, you know, if you rewind and play back their life 100 different ways, there's probably like, you know, one to five scenarios where they do what they did. And then maybe there's like in the 90s percent of scenarios where they're like homeless, you know, addicted to drugs under a bridge somewhere. It, 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 that's but you know you look at any of the creative arts right the the best painters in the world the best artists the best writers right there was also something a bit off about them um but but so while while not everyone who's irrationally passionate is going to succeed there will the absence of that irrational passion hinders the ability for a young tech company to get to that next level. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, that's a really, I think that's my favorite lesson so far. Number four, we're going to mark that one down in the, <laughs> the show notes. <laughs> well, and, and, a... you know, and, and, and the reason why, you know, it might sound contradictory for people who have, who have read some of my writing or heard me speak before is that part of my job today is to take that irrationally passionate founder and turn them into a CEO. So, um, so it's not so easy to make that switch. And it's what sort of I've built, you know, trajectify in my, my career over the past 10 years and, and getting good at. But, um, but without that irrationally passionate founder, um, you're, it's going to be much tougher to succeed. And that was my mistake. Yeah. Love it. All right, let's do one more. We got uh, one more in us here, I hope. Uh, one more. We'll go five, right. and then we'll tease out uh, what you're working on after that. All right, so um, I'll, I'll go back to the very beginning of my career, the the very first startup I worked at. Um, I had I had um, just a little bit of history. I, I went to 
California. I moved from New York to California to do grad school at Stanford. I hated Stanford. Um, so I left and I, I left after a quarter and then I went into a, um, I, I went to work for Lockheed Missiles in Space, what they, so they were called at the time. And I got to work on rocket science and realized that, man, the project I'm working on is 20 years, but I'm in the middle of this thing called Silicon Valley. Why am I working on a 20-year project when I could be working on a start a startup? So I left and I went to my first startup, which was a company called, um, it, it was called um, Knowledge Set which was one of the first companies to conceive of putting data on a CD. So Sony was beginning to put music on CDs and we said, why can't you put data on a CD? So again, another pioneer that ultimately took the arrow in the back. But anyway, it was, and this will appear to sort of any sort of tech history guys, but it was founded by Tom Rollinger and Gary Kildall, who were the inventors of CPM, one of the like the first really cool operating systems prior to DOS and um, in the early days of PC computing. And they founded a company called Digital Research. So Gary and Tom founded Knowledge Set. Um, we moved it to Silicon. They were based in Monterey, California. We moved it up to Silicon Valley and Mountain View. Tom flew in. Gary wasn't involved in the day to day. Tom flew in once a week. Um, he, he was a pilot, so he had his own plane. So he would fly in and, and visit us once a week. And the company had no leadership. There was really no one leading the company. We were just 15, you know, engineers like hacking out systems for like Federal Express at the time or IBM, pretty significant clients. We were building CD-ROM based um, knowledge systems for them. Um, Some companies kill it that way, like just engineers building stuff for engineers. Well, but uh... but the company itself wasn't succeeding, right? We weren't making money. We weren't satisfying our investors who were, our investors were predominantly, we were closely held by a publishing company, a printing company rather, not publishing, a printing company who saw the future, right? They said the future may not be books. Um, they, um, anyhow... So the company realized that we weren't making progress, so they hired an interim CEO who um, who came in twice a week after his golf game. So often he was in very loud clothes. I'm remembering a pair of very colorful golf pants, like patchwork golf pants. Think think 19. Um, 80s, very, very colorful golf pants with um, a green shirt, a bright green polo shirt, golf shirt. And we'd come in, he would go into an office, he would close the door. I have no idea what he did. And then he would come out and leave. Um, he did that twice, two or three times a week. And um, and so they they solved, you know, I, and you know, this is a podcast, but I'm doing air quotes around solve. They solved the, the lack of a CEO um, in a way that completely was not a solution at all. And ultimately, the team fell apart, the product fell apart, the company fell apart because there was no leadership. And it was the first, you know, looking back on it, it was like how critical good leadership is to building a company. Um, and so, I mean, you, you can't just put a, a few engineers in a room and say, bam, magic happens. Um, if you're going to build it into a business and a business that's ultimately scalable and sustainable, um, you got to start out with leadership. And every one of the companies I went to after that had good leadership, right? I I learned that lesson pretty early on in my career saying, um, I I, got to make sure I'm working for the right people, that this company is led in a way that that will 
help me succeed by ensuring that the company succeeds. Yeah, so that's interesting, but it contradicts with the last one you just said. The last one was you need a crazy uh we had that no, we had the, we had the crazy passionate founders. That was Tom. Okay. Like, right. Problem is he wasn't running the company, he was just, you know. He, he was fueling the product things. I, I learned so you had so the crazy much. person doing their thing, but yeah. so you need the crazy person and you need the person who knows how to organize it. And you need, and you need a people leader. And sometimes that could be the same person. In Tom's case, it, it wasn't. That was not what he wanted to do. Yeah. You know what's crazy? Like I was just talking with someone the other day about this uh, and it ties into this topic is like most companies, uh, I feel like you're either the CEO type who can take it from you know, tens or hundreds of millions to all the way up to big enterprise, or you're the, uh, the, the founder type person that can, you know, take it to like a few hundred employees, maybe, you know, maybe a thousand. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's a lot of, uh, like the biggest companies, like, you know, you talked about Bill Gates, you talked about Zuckerberg and, and Musk, uh, and Steve Jobs, well, Steve Jobs kind of got fired, but then came back. So the other three, uh, I think that's extremely rare and exceptional that somebody starts the company, but also continues at the helm all the way into, you know, Fortune 50. Yeah. And, and you know, like I said, I called them outliers. Um, and and some of them, we could argue today. In fact, many people are arguing right now about, about Musk. <laughs> Should you be that person? <laughs> right. Um, you know, why is, why, you know, Elon Musk is rumored right now to be, you know, you know, working long days and sleeping in his office at Twitter, right? It's like, well, is that really the kind of CEO that Twitter needs? Um, well, how is that even a rumor? He's done that at every other company he's been a part of. <laughs> but, but, um, but the thing about you know your, your your comment about founders is is it can be an evolution in someone's in someone's career to become that you know founder of a company and that that leader of a Fortune fifty. The problem is that m many many founders drop out before then because you know what they don't have that interest. Right. Especially if they've had an exit and you put some money in the bank and, you know, it's like, you know what, I don't want to do that. I don't find that fun. That's not me. Um, and, you know, they they may see themselves as that one day, but it's a transformation that requires um, adapting new behaviors that, you know what, they just don't feel that they need to do it. They don't want to do it. Um, they choose not to do it. And that's fine. That's fine. Um but I, I do believe that everyone has the capability. Anyone who starts a company has the capability of growing with it, if they focus on 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 their growth. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is a journey. I've I've experienced that myself firsthand. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think this is awesome. Uh, we got five out of the eight. So maybe we'll have maybe we'll have to come back and do a part two for the other three. Uh, anything else you want to close on? Uh, like any, uh, you want to talk about Trajectify a little bit and what you're doing today and uh, anything else specific you want to plug or or close out on? I mean, you know, happy to just you know, share a little bit about Trajectify. Like I said, you know, we, we, you know, we were founded to try to help founders become CEOs, growth stage companies, typically, you know, 10 employees to 250 employees. Um, you know, as you hit those different benchmarks in a company's growth, let's say 1 million to 5 million in revenue or 5 to 10 or 10 to 25 um you know how do you and your organization need to evolve right because they're not you know it, it's very different of growing from you know a thousand to two thousand than it is growing from 10 to 
50. And so, um, so we, we focus on that, that, that early stages of growth, um, helping the, the, the leadership, the leadership team, the, the, and the organization, the development of the organization evolve. Um, and we do it either through traditional coaching programs, um, coaching from the outside in. Um, we do it through um, peer coaching. Um, and, and Brian, you and I have had a chance to work in a, in a, in a CEO peer group together. And we also do that through um, what I'll call um, interim executive work, but really I look at it as coaching from the inside out, where we'll take a part-time role within your organization and, and be part of the organization and part of the leadership team and kind of be instrumental in the development of the, the, the people, the team, the processes to sort of accelerate the, you know, the opportunity to grow, especially for companies who are who are growing quickly enough that they're finding they have gaps, gaps in product management, gaps in strategy, gaps in people leadership. Um, so we we kind of coach from the inside out as well as from the outside in. Is the third one what you're doing for us, uh, me and Pam at Kirotech? Uh, to, a, to, to a lesser extent. I mean, I'm involved with you and Pam as, as part of your strategy team, but I'm not involved in the operations day to day of the company. Mm, okay. Um, so it'd be more, um, you know, I, I've done it with organizations where I've I've played a interim or, or my, any of the coaches in my organization have played an interim. We, we're doing one right now with a, with a venture-backed um, startup as um, embedded within their product organization. Um, which they didn't have one prior to our coaching of them, um, where we, we've done it with a, a, another organization as the chief strategy officer. And we put in to sort of, you know, uh, get alignment along the sales and the product and the dev teams, as well as, um, you know, create new lines of business, but also show them how to lead, how to build organization and lead people. So we've also worked, you know, they didn't have a chief people officer. We so we We also wore that hat. With the goal being it to be interim, that we come in, we show you how to do it, that we then replace ourselves, right? Either you're ready to, we either build the talent from the inside of the organization, or we help you hire that talent to replace us. Because our goal in any of our coaching is to get companies to the point where, where they're self-sustaining, that they yeah. don't need that outside support necessarily, that kind of outside support at that moment. Yeah, cool. Uh, great. This is a great episode. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that's a wrap. Super. Well, thanks for having me. Great to, great to share my stories. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for coming on, Mike.